Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the Amplify podcast. I'm Craig Gilbert, Amplify producer at Nottingham Playhouse. Over the next few weeks during these quarantine times, we thought it'd be a good idea to have some conversations with theatre creatives about their work and practice. Joining me today is the artistic director of Headlong, Jeremy Herrin. Jeremy most recently directed Labour of Love at the Noel Coward Theatre, People, Places and Things for the National Theatre in the West End and on tour, and the house they grew up in at the Chichester Festival Theatre. Prior to that, he directed the award-winning adaptations of Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies in two parts for the RSC. They transferred to the West End in May 2014 and Broadway in March 2015. For these productions, Jeremy was nominated for an Olivier and Tony Award for Best Director. Jeremy's also directed several productions at the Royal Court, including That Face by Polly Stenham, which transferred to the Duke of York's Theatre in the West End. He was nominated for an Evening Standard Best Director Award for Stenham's second play, Tusk Tusk, in 2009. Now, during my conversation with Jeremy, you might hear some strange background noises. That's because in these uh, times of self-isolation, I'm recording this at home in my bedroom on my laptop. So you may well hear the sounds of cars, birds and shutting doors and perhaps even this morning in the background. Uh, Sorry about that. Not much we can do about it. But we thought that having nice things to listen to during these times would be a really good idea. Anyway, I won't keep you any longer. Here's my chat with Jeremy. Hello, Jeremy. Thank you very much for talking to us on the Nottingham Playhouse Amplify podcast. Uh, you're the first guest of this new series that's happening in these uh, extraordinary times. Amazing uh, times. You... Thank you. Hi, Craig. Yeah. Hi, Nottingham. <laughs> um, Good evening, so, Nottingham. Uh, you... <laughs> are we, are we dis- you discouraging me from talking over you? Or can we just chat away and will it all come out? Um, well, we'll chat away. I mean, we're going to try and keep these as relatively, um, relative, as relatively informal as possible. So sure. uh, my hope is that it will just sound like a conversation uh, and uh, that people will appreciate that. Um, you might hear various things in the background, like doors and cars and whatnot. I'm doing this in my bedroom. And when I left work, I didn't think to bring podcasting uh, recording equipment with me. Uh, so um, this will be relatively lo-fi. Uh, so right. what does... Uh, what does quarantine look like for you at the moment? Let's start there. Well, I feel like it's been an unbelievably busy time. So we are talking on probably the second Wednesday after the theatres were closed is the way that I'm thinking about it. We we closed the visit at the National Theatre on a week ago on Monday. Um, and so this is like the beginning of, of week two, as far as I'm concerned. And... As uh, as you know, Craig, I run um, I run headlong, or I'm I'm just about to stop running headlong. Um, and one of the things that's great about a theatre company that doesn't have all the stresses and strains of um, making its living on a nightly basis by selling tickets is that we're um, relatively to, probably to organisations like Nottingham Playhouse, the brilliant Nottingham Playhouse, is that it's kind of things are the same. We're all working from home. And we're all talking to each other on Zoom calls every day. And um, it was my mission to say, look, how are we going to deal with this thing? We've, cr- we've cr- had to close all the theatres. We're all isolated. 
ironically, there's never been a time where we need a bit of theatre more. So we've developed this thing called Unprecedented, which is a um, we've commissioned a load of writers to write for video conferencing. And we're going to make a bit of live theatre um, over the course of the next couple of weeks. And we've got an amazing roster of um, writers that are dealing with the situation, the extraordinary situation that we find ourselves in, um, with the idea that theatre makers might be able to provide a bit of relief, a bit of insight, a bit of sucker, a bit of inspiration, just a bit of good old-fashioned entertainment in in a time when, by God, do we need it? So to answer well, your question, and- it's just like been really busy. It's been really busy. <laughs> Uh, and unprecedented that sounds that sounds really exciting do you know yet what form that will take by which i mean how will audiences be able to consume it will it be live yeah, will it, it, it will be live but online? also it'll it'll exist online it'll be able to mm-hmm. be separated we'll perform it live um but we'll record it as well so we can mm-hmm. send out each of the small plays they're about five to ten minutes long each and it's duncan mcmillan it's james graham it's jasmine lee jones it's April DeAngelis, it's Deborah Bruce, Chloe Moss. Um, Chloe excellent, Mo- very excellent. I'm sorry, my phone's ringing. My mum's trying to ring me. I think, she, <laughs> I think she's all right. I'll call her back in a second. I suppose we should stop that okay. happening. I'm going to go um, on to airplane mode. Yeah. I hope you're getting all of this. This is podcast gold dust. Um, yeah, we've got oh, an amazing, yes. amazing yeah. roster of, is, um, of writers. Jennifer Haley. Is writing one from LA. She wrote The Nether. Her take on this whole situation is going to be fantastic. You know, it's just yeah, great. Go um, to go to Well, she's a, a Jen is just is a writer and writes on um, on TV shows. And she says, you know, the lockdown is basically the same as. I mean, that's the thing when you talk to writers, they're like, "What lockdown? This is what we do all the time. We're just." <laughs> we're just yeah. in, we're just in feeling anxious anyway so you know so actually they've been they're the best people to go for i've had such great meetings with them so um if anybody's interested go to uh, headlong.co.uk unprecedented and you'll be able to see what is happening and what the arrangements are we're waiting just to sign up a, a broadcasting partner so that we can get a more stable platform um so that everyone can enjoy it but yeah, it's yeah. really exciting. It's a really exciting thing. Great. Uh, and I'll uh, put that in the show notes so uh, people uh, have a handy link to follow to. So um, let's uh, let's talk for a bit uh, about you and sure. how you ended up uh, running headlong. Where, where are you from, Jeremy? I'm from, well, I was born in America. My parents, we, my parents are British, but they moved to America for my dad's job. He was an electrical engineer and they relocated to America. Mm-hmm. In the early seven, in the late sixties, and they had me when I was out there, and so I lived there for about two years, and then we came back, and I was brought up in rural Northumberland, uh, which is a very beautiful part of the world. So whenever anybody says where are you from, I suppose um, like a lot of peripatetic middle class families, I don't quite know where I'm from, but I'm an American citizen, and I grew up in Northumberland, so that's probably the answer that I'll stick uh, I- with. And your dad? Uh, were, were there uh, were there any artists in your family? No. Any any theatre or anything like that? No, my mum was interested in theatre. Went to university. My mum went to university in Dublin, Trinity College Dublin. She was a Trinity player, which was quite a famous university society that a lot of professional 
actors came through. So she always had, um, she was never going to be a professional actress, but she always had a deep love of it. And I think where I got the, the bug for theatre was that, um, you know, in the middle of Northumberland, you're miles away from, you know, we're about 50 miles away from Newcastle upon Tyne. And there was not a huge amount of culture where we lived. But every autumn, the RSC would come to the Theatre Royal and bring a lot of their material. And my mum always saw all of them. And instead of getting a babysitter, she would bring me. And so I would sit with her and I would watch these, you know, what I've gone back and looked at who the actors that I saw, you know, I saw Peggy Ashcroft and, um, you know, Harriet Walters debut and, you know, some amazing people, all the RSC stalwarts and the stars of, of that time was the kind of first theatre that I saw really when the RSC was in its, in its pomp, you know, um, uh, Trevor Nunn, Terry Hands, that, that period of artistic directorship. And it was, it was exciting, you know, and Shakespeare sort of, I suppose it normalised Shakespeare and it meant that I, you know, I'm not a particular Shakespearean, but um, it, it's, it's good theatre and I'm, uh, it's always been part of me, you know. Yeah, and uh, do you do you remember any of them in particular? Is there what is there one experience sitting in the Newcastle Theatre Royal where you go, yeah, that's that's the thing that really. Well, I remember out. as a as a seven year old being amazed at, I can't remember whose production of The Tempest it was. I should look it up after this podcast, but it was um, it, they they had the bow of a ship that came out over the stalls yeah. and rocked back and forth. I mean, technically, it was a huge a huge amount of money, I now understand that, to represent. Um, and they actually did a kind of filmic version of a, of a tempest, of a storm. And it was absolutely thrilling wow. for a seven-year-old. Um, it made me think, oh, theatre yeah. can, you know, can do all of that. Well, that, that's much more impressive than my first standout theatre moment, which is seeing Spit the Dog uh, as part of Cinderella at the Mansfield Palace Theatre when I was about well, three or Spit four. The dog. That, that was the thing for me. I loved Spit the Dog. That's fantastic. Spit the dog. I mean, I'm not saying that production of The Tempest was was great. It was that wasn't the thing that really turned me into onto theatre. I don't think, but it it was a memorable moment. I remember as a as a kid seeing a clown, a woman called Nola Ray, um, and that was one of the first bits of theatre. It was a one woman show. That was one of the first and yeah. super simple. You know, the complete opposite of a um, huge production budget that the RSC was chucking around in those days. And that was one of the things that uh, and completely you, turned you, me You on. directed The Tempest later in your career. I did. I did. And I didn't have a big expensive boat at the beginning. I had a very small boat that I think we passed <laughs> around, that the groundlings at the Globe um, bobbed around on their hands. Yeah. They passed it around the audience as uh, as we spoke the, the opening lines. It's a great play, The uh, Tempest. Great, <laughs> great stuff. Yeah. So, uh, and then where where does it uh, where does it go from there? When do you decide that uh, this is the way I'm going to make my living? This is going to be the job. Well, I was uh, I went to um, I went to um, a, a school a, a public school in Northamptonshire, a school called Oundle, and I was a miserable kid, and I wasn't I didn't I wasn't very happy at boarding school. I didn't really like what it represented, and I felt very alienated. I think I was a relatively troubled. Um, teenager and I didn't really have a kind of direction uh, I did always like theatre and I thought I was going to be an actor and I remember one of the school plays getting a part that was, wasn't was very big and you know 
it wasn't going to be very stimulating. So typically, like a twit, I went and complained. And the teacher that ran the, <laughs> ran the drama stuff said, well, you're complaining because not because you want to play a bigger part, but you want to be involved. You want to be, um, you know, fully in this. And that's because you're a director. And this was at the age of 17, 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. And I, I hadn't really thought about what a director was. You know, it was just teachers directing kids in school plays. Yeah. And he said, you know, there is this thing called directing. That's a job and that's something that you can do. Um, and why don't you go and spend the summer holiday reading the, um, reading whatever plays what you can find and um, come back next term and I'll help you direct it. So I started uh, thinking about plays, thinking about directing, and I came back with a very studenty idea, which was to do Wojtek by George Buchner. Um, and I started directing and I kind of knew almost instantaneously that that's what I wanted to do with my life because it just felt like a combination of things to get good at that was really stimulating, you know, weird combination of, of, um, of qualities. You need to be slightly odd, I think, to excel at directing. And I've been trying to excel at it every, ever since. And what, what are the, what are those set of qualities that, uh, well, that there's sit a, there's oddly a, together? Well, there's an intellectual ask, but there's that's not enough. Yeah. There's a kind of logistical ask. There's an artistic aesthetic. Mm-hmm. There's sp- space design aesthetics. There's humour. There's psychology, understanding what characters are. There's mm. a good, you know, good old fashioned bit of English literature and textual analysis. There's the politics. There's the context in which you're performing it. There's a bit of vulgarity needed. Um, there's a bit of, uh, I suppose there's a bit of vision required, a bit of looking into the future. There's a sort of sense of um, what's really going on underneath the play. And there's a massive amount of person management. You know, there's a lot of collaboration with a lot of different sorts of people. Um and it's thoroughly stimulating because it's very, it feels like there's a lot to do. There's always a lot to do. Uh, and um, where, where, where did you, where did you learn those, where did you learn those things? If I'm, if I'm sitting listening to this podcast now uh, and, and all of that sounds brilliant. And what I want to do uh, during this lockdown period is uh, maybe start working on some of those things. Could you recommend books or resources or things that people can from their own home? Yeah, I mean, you know, and if I do, it sounds like I'm from a point of view of superiority or, you know, I've worked it all out. And actually, I think the the, the joyous thing about directing and about making theatre is that you never really know and you're always on a journey to to learn about it and how to do it better. So, you know, I'd be the sort of person, if it wasn't me talking, well, I definitely won't listen to this. Um, but if it, if, it, if it was someone else talking, I'll listen to the others in the, in the series because I'm fascinated about what other people say. Um, and the way you do it, I suppose, is you just teach yourself. It's how you teach yourself anything. You follow your you follow your passions, and you are rigorously self reflexive, and you understand where your strengths and your weaknesses 
might be and you you go into training and you get you get better and part of that is talking part of that is reading part of that is is um thinking and uh there's so many great books about directing i'm actually in my study now so i could just wander slightly over and see some of the books that really really helped me um the first one that comes to mind here is william gaskill's um autobiography a sense of direction that was a real eye-opener for me oh that that's a brilliant book um and then next to that is peter brooks the empty space and the shifting point which are two must reads um uh max stafford clark's letters to george is one of the best theater books ever written because it tells you how to um do actioning and it gives you a in my view a slightly too um doctrinaire way of working on text with actors but you've got to understand that before you move on from it and max is um uh, uh was certainly in his pomp at the royal court working on those new plays with particular uh, particularly female uh, particularly um dominated by women writers in, in the cohort uh, mm-hmm. of, of his commissioning was just a, an absolutely brilliant time. And he remains the sort of doyen of, of actioning and that Stanislavski approach. So I'd recommend Letters to George by Max Stafford Clark. Um, what else? I mean, there's loads of books of interviews with various different directors. And I've got three here on directing uh, Faber and Faber. Um, edited by uh, Gabriella Jan Mackey and Mary Luckhurst, Cole's director in rehearsals, uh, and then a book called Women Directors on Directing by Helen Manfield, uh, Helen Manful. And also there's an Anne Bogart book uh, somewhere around. I don't know where the hell that is. Oh, is that the, the her collection of essays, the letters to a... Director, no, no, it's the, the one? one. It's the ones where she's she's interviewed everybody basically. Anne Bogart, Conversations ah. with Anne, um, published by Theatre Communications Group, which is a cracker. Um, um, there's so many books here. We should do a special with my uh, yeah, but uh, the, uh, my, in my library, theatre <laughs> library, in in study. Um, but the thing, the thing about those books is what you can uh, you can glean techniques from them and yeah. try them Pick out up. and see I mean, what suits you as a director. Yeah, is that indeed. what you're saying? Yeah, we're all magpies, aren't we? And you find the process that yeah. um, suits you. And a good way to find a process is to educate yourself in how other people do it. And you find stuff that works from other people. You can spring off into your own practice from thinking about other people there's another great book called subsequent performances by jonathan miller which is one of my favorites as well uh there's there's so many great books you know just just follow your nose if somebody's really interested um in in this follow follow your nose you can't really go wrong because everything's gonna everything's gonna point you in one direction or another um i mean you know those interview books are a, a quick way of experiencing what it's like in in rehearsal with lots of people. Simon McBurney's got a really nice book as well. It's a collection of his writings, Simon McBurney, and that's full of insight, and he's very special. And, uh, yeah, uh, that uh, that Jonathan uh, Jonathan Miller book is also one of my favourites. I think it's uh, 
sort of it's a really exciting way of thinking about uh, well what he calls the afterlife of art and approaching a text and finding its echoes and analogies um well approaching any work of art from the past and and doing that it's uh yeah it's a, a great piece of work um but in terms of working with actors you oh, yeah. uh at you at 18 you took the really sort of insightful step of saying i'm going to go knowing you were going to be a director you said i'm going to go and train as an actor so i have the best possible insight into this process is that right that's kind of how i frame it i mean actually it was a uh... It was a, it was um, a de- degree course at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama. The institution is now called the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And they had, a, they had a diploma course that was for people entering the profession as actors and they had a degree course that was a slightly broader look at, um, uh, you know, working in the theatre. But most of the graduates of that would end up being actors like Alan Cumming and Forbes Masson uh, were on that course, Ruby Wax. David Tennant did that course. Um, you know, had a good mm-hmm. good, uh, a good hit rate for actors. Um, so I liked it because I had a bit of theoretical stuff and practical stuff and theatre and education and making plays and in a different way um, and approach, but a lot of acting. So it was a good education for me because it really... Um, I enjoy acting and I love actors and I respect acting. Uh, respect for acting, Uta Hagen, that's another good book. Um, and, you know, that that was certainly helpful. I'm certainly not frightened to, to get in there with actors and talk about what they're doing and talk about their process. And I, I think it maybe gives me confidence at pushing them as well because I, I'm not frightened that they've yeah. got some territory that I won't understand. Um, and that is the lifeblood of what I do. I just love writers and I love actors and I love learning from them and working with them and for them. And, you know, that's just what it's all about for me. Um, and what what I'm really interested in is, so you leave the Conservatoire in Scotland and then you begin your career. And what I'm really interested in is often when people have these conversations or when you see uh, their career written down in a program and it's just a list of credits it feels like uh, there's logic to it and it feels like the progression was all uh, preordained and it yeah. was always going to happen um, can you yeah. talk, can you talk a little bit about what it was like when you first left and finding your first work and uh, yeah whether whether in fact your career for that early period did have any logic as it might look like when you see a list of Jeremy Heron's credits. Uh, it's a really good point. I mean, who knows? It's just like you go from you go from one thing to the next best option, don't you? And anyone that says there isn't luck involved yeah. is insane. You know, you, I suppose you make your own luck by having a clear sense of what you want to be doing. But there's no doubt that I was incredibly lucky. The first thing that was my, you know, incredible boost was when I so I left um, the RSAMD and we'd set up a little theatre company and we were doing some work there and I was keen to get some assisting um, work and I applied to various schemes and I remember being outraged that I'd gone to Dundee Rep to apply for their uh, um you know, assistant directing thing, and they didn't accept me for some reason. I could not believe it. In fact, I'm still <laughs> furious about it. 
Well, I can't remember who the artistic director was at the time, but anyway, <laughs> they got a very grumpy uh, letter from me saying, what the hell are you playing at? So, you know, I had that I had that ludicrous self-belief that you can have in your 20s. Um, I could, you know, I was just, I was determined to make theatre and I was determined to find a way to do it. And I was so lucky because I got a gig at the Royal Court on a thing called the Regional Theatre's Young Director Scheme that's still going and it's mm-hmm. still a brilliant thing. And there was a scheme where... Uh, three theatres would uh, look for assistance to be with them for a year. And I think it was the Traverse in Edinburgh, the Royal Court in London, and somewhere else, maybe Lancaster, somewhere like that. Um, and you would do your rounds of interviews, and then you would you would pitch. You would you were encouraged to put a top three of theatres that you were interested in in order in case. Um, two or more theatres wanted you and they would see what your preference mm-hmm. was. And I felt pretty good about the that the interview had gone pretty well. And I worked out that if ev- everybody was going to say the Royal Court because it was the most celebrated, exciting theatre in the world. Um, and I thought, what am I going to do in order to get myself above the kind of, you know, to, to actually make a statement that actually was really important to me because I thought if I put a second choice everyone's going to put the Royal Court as their first choice and then then everyone then you're going to be encouraged to go to your second choice blah 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 so I just took a massive massive gamble yeah and I did um all three uh on the, on the top three I did Royal Court Royal Court Royal Court just to do a statement <laughs> that, that that's where I wanted to do I mean just that gives as I tell that story I'm just appalled at myself at the kind of arrogance and confidence of youth you know I would kill to be that confident now I'm so much more um, uh, self-doubting but at that time I just had a strong strong sense that I'd done well at the interview and a clear sense that that would be the thing that made the difference and would get me the, the job that I wanted and and amazingly enough it must have worked out because I got off of that how would you feel if a young director writing to you now did something similar? Well, I don't want to encourage any of that behaviour. But, you know, I think self-belief is right. a big thing. And you've got to get it from somewhere. You've got to get yeah. that self-belief from from somewhere. Um, and mm-hmm. you need it. You need it because it's a cliche, but it's a lonely job sometimes. And you've got to have those reserves to fall back on. Um, and I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I just went to to do it and you know and I put myself out on the line in order to 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 get there I suppose it would have been um really embarrassing to have failed but failure just wasn't an option at that point you know so go for you know I would encourage people to go for it you know locate a real sense an authentic sense of self-belief and recruit other people into making that a reality and find find an intelligent congruent and kind way to do that and uh, and your ranking works you you ended up at the royal court for for a year uh, and who who was the artistic director then was it Stephen Daldry well, yeah it was just the best it was just incredible timing you know another another moment of real luck was that it was Stephen Daldry's first year which was a moment where oh. it all just turned around I think and um, he spent a lot of money commissioning a lot of writers and a load of new voices came through in the theatre upstairs Joe Pennell uh, Anthony Nielsen, 
Sarah Kane. I remember reading Blasted for the first time. Um, actually being the first person to read it and just it blowing my mind that this was possible. Um, you know, it just was the best place to be. And Stephen was the artistic director and was, you know, and still is a brilliant director and, a, and a, an absolute inspiration as a man. James, James McDonald was the other associate director there who's got a completely different approach, but so so um, in, instructive and informative and illuminating. Ian Rickson was on his way as a very junior associate director and he was creating some amazing work. So, you know, a whole lot of white blokes, basically. It was that era where you had to be a white bloke. Um, yeah. And they were incredibly good directors and the culture was, was uh, very supportive of you know, strong work, good work. And that's, it was my, you know, it was just such a brilliant time. I was so lucky to be there and to absorb some of that amazing stuff. And and did you, did you do a show there as, as part of no. that attachment or was it? No, was no, 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 no. All the other theatres were sort of, all the, in the RT, RTYDS, all the other theatres were saying, come, come and join us and we'll give you a show. And the Royal Court were like, I'm going to a show? It's going to be ridiculous. You won't know what you're doing. Um, there was much more, much more matter of fact about it, um, and rightly so. You know yeah. that would have been that would have been a terrifying exposure. You know, it's the it's one of the best theatres in the world, certainly at the time. And you, I don't think you can just waltz in and do a little show. You know, each of their shows, upstairs and downstairs, are um, moments of of real significance that have a have a, a load of scrutiny and uh, a callow arrogant 22 year old that really didn't know what they were doing wouldn't be the right person and in fact it took me ages to get a show um i was too junior really at the time and then ian rickson for whatever reason didn't um didn't invite me into the fold with him so i had to wait until dominic cook um took the sh- took the place over to to get a uh, a show in the theatre upstairs, um, and in the meantime, I was just sort of chomping and, at the bit, and what? I'm not able to get a gig at the court for whatever reason. I don't know what Ian was up to, but he had a, a clear idea of the people that he wanted to work with, and I wasn't one of them for whatever reason. So I went to live theatre in Newcastle and made a load of work there and had a really creative and wonderful. Uh, and you were. Uh, you were there for what eight years? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, about eight years. Yeah, two thousand to two thousand and eight or so, and had a really creative time. Max Roberts was the artistic director, incredibly supportive. The space was really brilliant. Um, it's it it tell, it, it was look, a really great theatre. Tell us, you know tell us a, uh, well, yeah, I, I do know, but tell us for people listening that might not know, just tell us a bit about live theatre because it is it's a pretty unique um, well auditorium, isn't it, for a start? Yeah, but also yeah. it's. Uh, a unique entity in British British theatre, really. There isn't yeah, anything is. like a live theatre in Newcastle. Yeah, it doesn't quite. It doesn't um, quite get, in my view, it doesn't get the um, the the credit it deserves. It's a it's a really important place, and um, personally for me, it's a very very important chapter of my artistic development and my personal life. You know, it's a very important uh, time with lots of lasting relationships from that period. Um, live was in the seventies was a bit like one of those belt and braces or uh, one of those seventies seven eighty four 
you know, it was a, a very political touring company that had the idea that it would start the revolution by taking theatre into working class spaces. And it would be theatre that would be entertaining and mischievous and ribald and political and instructive and galvanising and inspiring. And, you know, the actors would pack the van, would go around the northeast in working men's clubs, rooms above pubs, community centres, uh, women's refugees or wherever. And the revolution would be born um, in the back of a transit van uh, over a few pints. Um, and then eventually the theatre settled, that company um, took over a home when the quayside in Newcastle was a bit of a wasteland. Uh, and they built a theatre that was basically a roof over a courtyard between two buildings uh, behind a pub just uh, <laughs> 200 yards away from the time. And it wasn't a middle-class space. It was a working-class space. There was a bar in the auditorium, tables and chairs. Um, you know, all the shows were kind of funny. It was local. It was authentic. And when I got there, that, that um, you know, that atmosphere was still a really important part of the work. You know, the, the work was political and socially responsible, but it was entertaining and it was unpretentious and it was direct. And there was a, a cohort of brilliant actors, um, Trevor Fox, Joe Caffrey, Decca Walmsley, Lita Davidson, Charlie Hardwick, a whole load of really, I probably missed a load of uh, people off. Um who deserved to be on that list, but and like how- a really brilliant group of actors. Um, and, you know, the, the great genius of, of uh, live at that time is, is it was, he's still a genius, Lee Hall, who was writing great work um, and creating projects and basically inspiring Max and inspiring me to, to make great work. And it was a very, very special, very special vibe. Uh, how did you feel going into that space, considering that it's not it's not your background at all? How did that feel? Uh, yeah, just how did that feel? Did you did you what, feel as a, like as you like a middle class? Did, did as you a middle class? Yeah, middle class theatre person. Um, I didn't. I felt complete. I've always felt yeah. very relaxed and not stressed about my class identity. Um, I think I sort of got over that very. Mm-hmm. Early as a public school boy, I, I was very conscious that um, you know there's big social uh, divide in this country, and that was something I had to get my head around really quickly. And um, I pride myself on not having uh, a social snobbery. I think I'm a snob in lots of other ways, politically, intellectually, possibly, but not in terms of class background. Yeah. Um, and I think yeah, if you feel insecure or worried about that stuff, then then it is gonna it is gonna close you down. But I've never felt worried about that. And I think the lasting relationships with people from that community uh, is a testament to the fact that there was no there's no bullshit around that. So it wasn't an issue at all. And I'm I'm very interested in working class voices and um, I think it's very important to encourage them and that was a great place to to do that. And in fact it was really refreshing to work in a theatre that by and large, uh, wasn't a, a sort of bourgeois social space. That it it was a slightly different atmosphere. It's, it served a different function, um, which is very easy to forget when you work in 
uh, metropolitan theatre as I as I do a lot now. So it was yeah, it was great, and it wasn't a, it wasn't um, I don't know maybe some of the folk from um, live would would have a different point of view, but it, it was never an issue for me, and I always felt completely welcome, um, and was never never uh, you know it, was, it didn't feel like an issue. And uh, you mentioned Lee Hall. Uh, who else was coming out of there at that time? Was Peter Strawn one of those guys? Peter Strawn, yeah. That... Peter Strawn. Peter Strawn was fantastic. Yeah. It was really one of the leading lights. A woman called Ju- Julia Darling, who was a great friend, um, still famous for her poetry. Uh, she died sadly, yeah, um, at the age of forty-four, having left a, a, a legacy of uh, wonderful novels, uh, poems, and plays. And she was a great friend and a great collaborator. Karen Laws was a was a great writer coming up that time. Um, young writer, young writer called Joe Harbert from Cumbria was part of it. Lee Mattinson, um, lots of people coming through. Sarah Millican, the famous comedian, who's a really wonderful person, did a writing course yeah. when she was a social worker there, and um, she very kindly credited the writing course with with you know encouragement to get out of her. Um, job and to get on with her showbiz endeavours, and it's great that she's such a cool comedian now. So there was, you know, it was a very buzzy, good time with lots of great people around, and we, you know, we made little films, we did a lot of projects. <clears throat> Basically, it's the same, the same sort of vibe that I've encouraged at Headlong. Um, it feels like lots of writers, lots of actors around the place, lots of creativity. Um, just a lot of fun and a lot of work, you know, creating a lot of work. It was a really, really good time. And making all that work, but quite cut off from, uh, well, certainly the uh, the London theatres where the majority of your, your work is now. Uh, and uh, it sounds like a brilliant time, but how did you, uh, were you all the time inviting people to come and see what no, you were doing I mean, up in Newcastle? Were you pursuing, yeah? Not really. People don't come. No. It's difficult it's difficult to get a gig as a director when someone hasn't seen your work. So I just settled in to go, well look, I'm making work for this community and I'm happy doing it and it's fun to do it. I'm not gonna be too worried about a career path. Cause certain stuff you just can't control. You know, I'm a big believer in the um the serenity prayer that the alcoholics anonymous hold dear, you know. Um, if if you can't control it, there's no point in stressing about it, you know. Um, yeah. And just be just be serene about the stuff that you can't control, uh, and the stuff that you can change. Have the courage to change the things you can, and the wisdom to know the difference between those two things. Feels like a brilliant watchword for life. So I was just getting on with it, you know. There were a few few creative frustrations started to creep in, and so I thought, well, I'm going to broaden things out I'm going to start thinking about how to make films and started that route and it's almost as if at the same time that I made that commitment to remain empowered creatively and to move in a slightly different direction um, I lucked out Dominic Cook who'd just taken over the Royal Courts and play and asked me to think about directing it so you know I'm a great believer um, however woolly it sounds in not getting stuck or feeling sorry for yourself or thinking that um, you know the, the, that that somebody owes you a living, and it's just not fair. I think you've just yeah. got to be self-starting. You've got to just go. Well, I'm gonna 
I'm going to take control of what I'm up to in as far as I'm able to. And that energy, it's almost like that energy attracts opportunities somehow in um, some kind of quasi mm-hmm. spiritual, spiritual way. So, you know, that's what happened. Yeah. And, and well, when, I that, got, when I got that offer, that I knew, um, go on. No, I was going to say it's that thing. I recently watched, uh, rewatched Hearts of Darkness, you know, the documentary yeah. about the making of. Um, Love it. Love it. Uh, the making of Apocalypse Now, and in in that, uh, Francis Ford Coppola says a brilliant thing. He says, "If you if you want to if you want to make a film, just start making a film." Uh, and it's it's that kind of attitude, isn't it? If, yeah. you, if you want to make theatre, just you yeah, um, do it where do it wherever you can, and keep going, and uh, make make the things that you want to make uh, as much as is possible. And yes. hopefully, you will gather that momentum around you, and stuff will start to happen and so uh that play that um that dominic cook sent you that was that face was it that face yeah it was and um you know when he sent it to me i thought uh, okay here's an opportunity for me to get into a, a different yeah. different level maybe to get back to london and, and work with people there which was I, I was really up for and family wise it made sense that my partner's from london and it made sense you know if we could make that work um that would be that would have been good. And it was Polly Stenham's first play. It was this punky, posh, 19-year-old Tyro. And she, you know, she wrote this play that just had this wonderful, authentic energy within it. And so we cast um, Lindsay Duncan, who was just amazing, a young Matt Smith, uh, Felicity Jones's first part on stage. You know, just an incredible um, combination of people. I, I really wanted it to work. Polly was determined that it would work. It just turned into a, a funny thing. There was a lot of energy about it and people wanted to see it. And it's, it, was, uh, it was one of those um, flagship shows that, you know, turned a lot of stuff around for me personally and gave me a, a foothold in the, in the, in, you know, the London theatre scene. Uh, yeah, and I think actually it's, it's a really good time just thinking about because that was uh, Polly Stenham's first play, and she was uh, sort of preternaturally young, wasn't she? Was what 17, 18 when she wrote that play? Maybe 17 or 18 when she wrote it. I think she was 19 when we were when we were doing it. But can you can you talk a little bit about uh, about your uh, process of working on a play um, uh, with a writer from you receiving it to the first day of rehearsals? And what that looks like. It depends on the shape of the play, and what the writer's up for, and and what that suggests is that the you know that we know we know because at some point between receiving the play and the first day of rehearsals, you've got a big decision to make, which is are you going to produce it? So it's got you know, and the writer's usually done enough work to make that possible. Um, And there's there's rewrites and finessing and all of that. But usually the patient, you know, needs to be alive on the first draft. And there's nothing more exciting than reading uh, the first draft of a play that that as you're reading it, it occurs to you that you want to direct it and that you've got the the route to put it on stage. You know, that's possible, that's defined. There's nothing more exciting. Um, So the Um, process... Can you define what it is? Can I define what it is that makes me want to... Were you going to say, Ken, can I define yeah. what it is that makes me say yes to producing that makes a you play? Want... Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Well, it's got to be a yeah. good play. It's got to be alive. It's got to be authentic. It's got to be its mm. own thing. It's got to be 
engaged. It's got to move forward. There's got to be some good parts for some good acting. There's got to be something that chimes with my understanding of the world or educates me in how the world is. It's difficult to define exactly, but I suppose I've got to love it. And I've got to fall in love with it as a bit of writing. And then everything else is um, and go on. is sort of logical and and common sense. But if you don't have that um, connection and deep respect for the bit of writing, then do something else. Uh, and you were going to talk about uh, process before I interrupted you. Can you, uh, you pick up on that? So the process before rehearsals. Yeah, sure. How, however, you, however you want to define it. I'm, um, I'm just thinking that um, so often we, uh, like, we we don't talk about this, and directors, very few directors, get to spend time in other directors' rehearsal room unless you're lucky enough to be um, uh, assisting them. So yeah, if you could give us a, a precy of what takes place in your rehearsal room, that would be great. Depends how much time you've got. I mean, usually in this country, you've got four weeks as a sort of basic sort of rep or headlong um, amount of time is usually about four weeks. Five weeks is um, slightly more generous, uh, sort of old Vic, um, some West End stuff you can get five weeks. And then the National is six or seven weeks, depending on the scale of the production. And five weeks is probably is probably the ideal amount of time, I think, in my view, to direct a play. That's usually enough, mm-hmm. unless the play is huge. Um, but I will always have a week, the first week will always be around the table working on the text and will involve um, visitors coming in to talk to us about certain you know, vital research or stuff around the play. Um, you get an expert or two in to come in, tell us about whatever we need to know about. Um, I often try and do a day trip, which is to do with cast bonding. Uh, apart from anything else, it's just good to get out on the road and have some fun and to make connections, emotional connections with the people that you're working with, as well as, you know, maybe visualising something that is helpful for the world of the play and you can specifically draw. Can you give us an example? Yeah, so I did a musical with Jack Thorne called um, Junkyard. And we had a really fun, it was like a load of young people who were recruited into building an adventure playground. And we, we hired a bus and we left London and we went down to Bristol to the playground, the adventure playground that it was based on. And that was a really fantastic day because, you know, we weren't in character or improvising on the bus, but it did feel like a load of naughty kids having a day away from the city. And it just felt like such a lovely um, a lovely bonding thing. And Callum, who was one of the actors um, on that trip, uh, was, you know, he was playing the guy that was building the adventure playground. And just quite naturally, he slotted into uh, a vibe of, you know, coming up with funny games for everybody to play on the bus and just really being the kind of uh, ringleader of um, just having a laugh. And so that was just like the perfect version of a research trip and we've probably got so much work done on that day uh, that it just it meant that that joy and that connection between the actors was just always present throughout that um, show it was a really lovely process and a lovely show and I'm sure Callum and the rest of the guys 
the way that they dealt with that day out was just really fantastic. So, you know, that'd be the perfect example of it. Um, it's just about having a little bit of an overview before you jump into the nitty gritty of making a lot of, of detailed small choices. Um, and it's a way of me just checking everybody out and thinking how, how, how is the, what's the best way to direct this person? What, what seems to excite them? What's the, their emotional vocabulary? How do I get the most out of them? How do I give them permission to talk to me? It's all of that stuff, really. And it's a bit of fun. And it delays the nightmarish work of actually trying to stage the thing, you know, which I'm so keen to do in that first week because I'm usually terrified that I don't know what I'm doing and that it's not going to be any good. And, that, um, you know, it's a bit of a nightmare for me and I got away with it on my last show, but really I don't know what I'm doing as a director. All of that insecurity and that, that nightmarish stuff sits underneath my process as much as it does anybody else's and I suppose if I've learned anything it's just like um, just to, how to push through and how to not let that fear close me down because it feels like that's the crucial thing in making art is that if it's not frightening then you're not doing it right and if you're giving in to the fear then that's your biggest problem you know, what's whatever that self-help Have you ever is. given into it in a rehearsal process? Yeah, I have done. I have done. Early on, I did a show, a play that I loved by Michael Wynn called The Knocky at Liverpool, Everyman. And it was a show that I really wanted to do, but emotionally I just wasn't ready to take that, um, that step. And I think the thing that I was incredibly frightened of was that the play, or the production rather, that the production wouldn't... Um, be as good as I wanted it to be and my ego or whatever uh, wouldn't be able to handle that. So I got very, very scared and I couldn't just push through. And that was a hard way. Of, I walked off the show, actually. It was a disaster. And it was, you know, lots of, I left lots of, um, there was a, just a lot of bad feeling and self-loathing came through that. Um and actually, mm. that was a very tough way of learning an important lesson, which is it's not going to be good until it's bad. You know, you've got to allow it to be bad and just let it get better and better incrementally. And you've just got to accept that bad is part of the process, you know. Great. Well, I know that we are uh, we're fast running out of time now, um, but thanks uh, so much for talking about that. Can I just ask, um, before I let you get off, what was the last thing that uh, work of art that absolutely blew your mind? The last work of art that blew my mind. You know, theatre, film. Sure. Painting, yeah, I'm just anything. thinking. There's been a there's been a there's been a lot. Um, I want to say two things. First thing I want to say is. Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights, which I watched again the other night, um, which I think is really fantastic, a magnificent um, movie. And um, I was watching it with my son, that blew him away as well. And what's really exciting about watching Boogie Nights is that you know that the next film that he made was Magnolia. So I'm really looking forward to watching that in a couple of days. Since we're in lockdown, we're doing a bit of delving back into the movie movie business um 
So that was a really wonderful experience. The thing that occurs to me, though, that really blew me away, um, and I read it this time last year, and I've been sort of dipping in and out of it ever since, is George Eliot's Middlemarch that I'd never read before. And it's without doubt the best novel I've ever read. It's the most magnificent bit of writing. There isn't a duff sentence in it. There isn't a word out of place. The scope of it is completely awesome. Uh, The politics, particularly its feminism, is wonderful. All of the choices that that genius made are timeless and perfect. And it's entertaining and moving and inspiring and galvanising. And I would recommend that if people listening to this, the five or six people that are going to be listening to this, um, if, <laughs> if they've if they've never read it before, uh, grab it, give it a hundred pages. I guarantee you'll be fit. You'll be hooked by a hundred pages. If not, I will buy the copy of you. Um, it's a really brilliant, 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 brilliant book, and I can't believe that I got to the age of forty nine without having read it. It's a brilliant book that um, I'm probably going to read every year. Uh, until I die, it's a wonderful. Um, what what made you decide that forty nine was the moment? I don't know. Just it just it always, you know, I read it in a list a few years ago. Someone said this is the best book ever written, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll be the judge of that. Anyway, it just kept popping up for some <laughs> reason, and I had a, a bit of time in between plays um, because I find it very difficult to read a big novel whilst I'm directing a play because it feels like I can only accommodate one imagined world at a time. I can watch movies and I can read short stories. I can get to the get to the end of something, but I can't hold a novel alongside um, that I'm, you know, when I'm directing a play because the the world of the play has got to sort of just live in in the kind of in my down moments. So I just never I never read novels. I can read nonfiction and I can read short stories. Um, and I had a few weeks where I wasn't directing anything, and I thought um, now's the time. And I loved it, and it blew me away. And I share that with your listeners generously. It's a really wonderful book. Have you read it? Great. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, quite quite a while ago. It is. It is. It is a marvelous book. Um, I I think it probably took me more than a hundred pages to say I was going to finish it. But uh, yeah, I remember it sort of being next to the bed for a long time, sort of nagging at me to just do a little bit more, and then eventually. I, I couldn't not finish it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good lockdown book. Um, what can I say? And I'm reading absolutely. I'm reading I'm reading um, Hilary Mantel's um The Mirror and the Light at the moment, which I'm about three quarters of the way through, which is just phenomenal. It is a wonderful bit of writing. Um and I'm loving it. And it's the, it's I've been slowing down as I approach the end because it's so good. It's one of those ones, you know. Um Brilliant. Well, uh, thank you very much for talking to me, Jeremy. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, I'm sure those five or six people will really appreciate our conversation. Good. God bless them. Well done, Craig. Thanks for asking uh, me to do this. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.